I invite you now to open your Bibles to the index that you'll find at the beginning. We opened to the index as we began this series, and we're now seven or eight weeks into it. Uh, sorry, I don't have the exact number in my mind, but I'd like us to go back to it so that we can remind ourselves of, of some things that we've learned as we've been doing this series through the Old Testament. And one of them is, <clears throat> we are all incredibly fortunate to be heirs of centuries and centuries of labors to bring the Bible to us in one bound form where we get 66 books that we can hold in one bound copy. The, the story of the translating of the Bible and the transmission of the Bible to us is an amazing story of men and women throughout church history that we all are indebted to um, for the work that they did and the sacrifices that they made in providing this for us. One of the things, however, that can be a disadvantage to us when we only experience the Bible as one bound book is that we lose sight of some things that people who would have been receiving it as the original hearers would have understood. And that is we have 66 books. We don't have just one book written in one setting at one time and place in one language. But we have a variety of books written by a variety of authors in a variety of locations and in a variety of languages. And our Bibles are not organized as we would initially anticipate. And so we ask the first time, when you see all these books and, and they're listed for you and the page numbers are given, do you think that they're organized by the order of the events that take place within them? Or do you think they're organized by the time in which the book was written. So the first book is the first book that we encounter and the second book written is the second book that we encounter. Or do you think the books are organized by the type of literature that they are? And as we said before, it's the last one actually. They're organized by the type of literature that they are. This is true not only of the Old Testament, it's also true of the New Testament. And so if we were to ask ourselves, what do some people believe is the first book written in the Old Testament, or one of the first characters that lived, maybe even preceding Abraham, is Job. We don't know what quite to do with Job. We don't know where to place him exactly. But if you look in your uh, outlining of books, you'll find the book of Job somewhere down in the middle uh, of your Old Testament books. When we go to the New Testament and you ask the question, what might have been the first written book of the New Testament, most scholars believe it's 1 Thessalonians, which again you'll see is somewhere in the middle of what you're encountering. And last week we were in 1 Kings, and we saw what happened immediately after the death of Solomon in the division of the kingdom of Israel. Now this week we're going from 1 Kings to 2 Kings. We're only moving one book as it unfolds in the Bible. Yet between the story of last week and the stories that we'll encounter this week is where we would place most of the material that we find that we refer to as the prophets. From the division of the kingdom of Israel to the fall of those kingdoms, and they happened at different time periods, is where we get Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel and Hosea, Amos and Obadiah and Micah. And so as we read those books of the Bible, our first responsibility is to read them in light of where they would fit in between 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Because context is king when it comes to understanding something. I had a great example of this this morning. 
There's a conversation that I have every Friday around 4.30 in the afternoon and every Sunday at about 8.30 in the morning. It's a phone call that I have with Dakota. And the phone rings, and it usually used to go like this. Uh, The phone would ring, and I would say, hello, hello, Peter? Yes, this is Peter. Is this Dakota? Yes, it's Dakota. Are we having church today? Yes, we're having church today. Can you pick me up? Yes, I can pick you up. What time should I expect you? I'll be there around 6.15 on Friday or 9.15 on Sunday. Okay, I'll see you then. Well, we've had that conversation enough times that now there's a context established and so the conversation is much shorter. And now the phone call goes like this. Phone rings. Hello, Peter? Yes. What time? And I say the time. Now, I know what he means when he's asking me what time. This morning, he called a little bit earlier than usual, and I was out for a run. So Amy picked up the phone, and she picked up the phone, and she said, hello. And he said, hello, what time? And she said, what, what, what time is it now? I mean, how do you know what the person is asking? There's a whole context behind this now very brief conversation that the two of us have that uh, Amy was not privy to, and so afterwards I explained to her the larger context and it made much more sense to her. So context is how we understand this. If you were to come up to me afterwards and all I would hear out of your mouth is what time, I would be thinking that you're asking me to check my phone or check my watch to tell you what time it is right now. And when we read our Bibles, we have to ask ourselves what context was what we're reading written in? And oftentimes, because of the way our Bibles are organized, we come to portions of Scripture like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Amos, and we don't pay attention to the time period they were written in, simply because in the organization of how we receive it, they're separated. But they're not separated for any other reason than the type of literature that they are, and to understand one, we need the other. Now, We believe that what God has given to us in his word and for a particular time and place still applies to us today. So there's nothing wrong with reading a portion of Isaiah or a portion of any other text and saying, what is God saying to us today? But I submit to you, we can't understand that correctly until we first understand what God was saying to them in their day. And so our story that we get to in 2 Kings has so much literature behind it now in the prophets that we need to get to Second Kings, if you will, by way of the prophets. So we're going to do some turning back and forth, and you'll notice we'll go to the right, and then we'll go to the left, and we'll go to the right, and we'll go to the left. That's because it's how it's organized. But for us to have a better context of what's going on, we're going to do some turning today. And the first book, and since you're in your index, you should be able to locate it fairly simply, is Hosea. We're going to go to the prophet Hosea in chapter 4. But where we left off last time is God had made a promise, an eternal promise to to David that God would build for David and his house a kingdom that would endure forever. David had a desire to build God a temple and God had said to him, it won't be you who builds it, but it'll be your son after you and I will build from your 
people from your own house, a nation that endures forever. And Solomon, the wisest king of all of Israel, had amassed power and they'd enjoyed as a nation a relative period of peace and unity among themselves. But in the latter years of his life, Solomon had rebelled against the ways of the Lord, had wandered from God, and in punishment for Solomon's sin, division happened after he died within the kingdom. And we saw the story between Rehoboam and Jeroboam last week. It is in this time period where the kingdom is divided that God raises up prophets to give a message to the kings and to the people about how he wants them to live. And when we go to this prophet Hosea, who's a prophet to the northern kingdom, we get a sense of what's going on as we begin in chapter 4. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. For you shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." And because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. So this division that happened within the nation of Israel, now there's two kingdoms. It wasn't only that they weren't able to get along with each other, but they were no longer getting along with God. They no longer cared about God's ways, his precepts, his rules. And it says that actually the more they increased, the more that they experienced physical blessing, whether it was in increased geography or or finances or whatever it was, the more they increased, rather than increasing in their thankfulness towards God, they increased in their sin against him. That even though they were blessed and increasing, God was giving them things that other people did not have the luxury of experiencing, if you will. Their increase in wealth, their increase in power in land did not lead to an increase in their spiritual commitment to God, but rather their rebellion against him. And God had told them that he's not interested in just building kingdoms. He's not interested in just building armies. He's not interested in palaces. He's interested in righteousness and holiness and justice and in peace. And what he wants is a people that are committed to those very things. And so here's this particular prophet who the the group on Thursday nights is going to go through this prophet in detail now over the summer. He's an amazing prophet worth reading about what God calls this prophet to do to show to the nation what it's like to relate with him. And it's the story of a broken lover, one who, who loves another. And the other person is just unwilling to to be open to receiving the love and enjoying the love that's intended. 
And God, as we've said this entire time, is in love with his people and he's made promises to his people and he doesn't break the promises that he makes. And yet in that demonstration of love, there is not, unfortunately, a reciprocation of love back. And again and again and again, the people of God break the heart of God and do not listen to him. So this is a bit of what's going on. The nation, you would come to them and not know that they had a God who gave them the Ten Commandments, that had a God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And now we go to Second Kings chapter 17, where we continue in the narrative of Israel and what happened because they would not listen to these prophets that God had sent to them, warning them to turn from their sin. We'll start in verse 6, I believe is where we start. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halal and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets." But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. So here we have a very clear statement of the purpose of God and the prophets that he sent to come to his people and to beg them, to plead with them, to turn from their evil ways and to keep their commandments. As we said, God had originally given his commandments, not because he wanted to kill the joy of all of his people, but because he loved them. And he knew that it was only in obedience to his commandments that true love and freedom could be experienced. So he gave this to them out of love. Now they've walked away from it, and he sends to them prophets to say, I still love you, but my love for you doesn't just let me say, go and do whatever you want, but my love for you is to call you back to the way of life that I originally intended when I set you free from slavery in Egypt. You see, sometimes it's possible for the people to be out of Egypt, but Egypt to still be in the people, if that makes sense. For 400 years, they'd experienced oppression and injustice. Society that was built and ruled by raw power. 
And now they're called out of that society and not instructed to govern the same way and manipulate and coerce and rule by raw power, but to be a society built on laws that first honor God and then honor neighbor. If you will, God didn't set them free so that they could just become their own little Egypt, but he wanted them to be different from the Egyptians that they'd come from. He wanted them to be different from the Canaanites, that when they came into the land, they saw them and observed their religious practices where they sacrificed their own children to the gods. God didn't look at his people and say, that's what I want you to do. I just, I want you to do it and not them. I want them out of here. He's saying, no, I don't want anybody to think that honoring me is sacrificing your children on an altar. I don't, want, I don't desire that for anybody in love for you. I want you to teach your children my ways. I want you to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they can teach to their own children my ways. That's what honors me. And how anybody came to believe that I would be honored in the abusing of children, in the manipulation of other people through raw power, that's not the society I'm trying to build. And here these people are, and they're wanting to do what the nations around them are doing, what God had brought them in to demonstrate, to be a light on a hill, and to remove that kind of wickedness from the land. Here, they are just as committed to doing those things, and so God brings punishment upon them through the kingdom of Assyria, and they are taken captive, and their city is destroyed because of it. Because God has no commitment to make permanent our rebellion against him. In love for us, he doesn't want to do that. And so now, these southern kingdoms, these two tribes, can look at their brothers and sisters to the north that are no longer, that have now been destroyed. Their kingdom's been taken away. And so now God sends more prophets to them and says, hey, what happened to them can happen to you. Don't think it can't happen to you. If you ignore our ways, if you don't listen to these commandments, this can happen to you. And so we turn to the book of Isaiah to get a sense of a message that God would have given again through the prophets to his people. And the entire time, even in the rebuking, even in the judging, God is speaking as one who loves his people. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the prophet, speaking for God to the people, says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here God sends his prophet to his people to say, you can't out-sin my love. You can't out-sin my grace. My purposes and my plans for you are good. And no matter what you've done up to this point, if you come back to me, if you return All your sins, though they were as scarlet, will become white as snow. There's no sin that I can't forgive, but if you continue to walk away from me and you do not receive the very forgiveness that I'm trying to give, the very love that I'm trying to show, your end will be to be destroyed by the sword. 
from the time of the division of the kingdom to the fall of the northern tribes was roughly about 200 years. And from the time of the fall of the northern kingdom to the fall of the southern kingdom is roughly about the same period of time. God is incredibly patient with his people. And this message is a message that came again and again from generation to generation. If you will follow him, if you will obey him, you will get to enjoy all the promises that he has for you. But the story of Israel is a sad story because though they have hundreds of years of evidence behind them that it is better to obey than to sacrifice, they choose to rebel. And now we go to 2 Kings 25 and we see what happens. How did the people hear the prophets that God had sent to them? Well, the reality is they didn't hear them. And so beginning in verse 8 of 2 Kings 25, we see what now happens a couple hundred years later to this southern kingdom. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house And all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and in the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. What an experience in this nation's history, this nation that had seen and now heard the stories of God's faithfulness to them in the walls of Jericho falling down. And now they have to make sense of the walls of Jerusalem falling down. Destroyed. And not only the walls of the city, but the temple of the Lord, destroyed, burned by an outsider, by a foreigner, by one who did not know or serve their God. But the king of Babylon coming in, sending in his captain, his soldiers, and they experience this destruction. The the message of the prophets was ignored, and so the security of God was lifted, and they were exposed to what transpired. This is why we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet because Jeremiah was a prophet in this time period of Israel's history and there was nothing to cheer about. He'd spent the beginning part of his ministry trying to warn them so that this would not happen. Then he observed it happening and wrote the book of Lamentations because of it. And this is a sad turn in the story of God's relentless pursuit of his people to love them, but he loves them too much to keep them as happy sinners who wander away from him. He loves us too much to to never chastise us. There's a song that I listen to. It's a very weird experience that I have in the car. Uh, There's a CD that I have by Sandra McCracken. that it's a collection of hymns, some that she wrote, some that she simply rewrote the melodies to. There's one song 
that, you know, you turn your car on and you might be on song two, you might be on song seven, you know, depending on where you start it. But literally, no matter where I am and where I'm driving, I have the same experience with one particular song that's four verses that on the third verse, I never miss one phrase. Whether I'm in conversation with someone or just staring out the window, there's one phrase I don't miss. And it's, do you think he ne'er reproves me? What a false friend he would be. And it's a Puritan prayer that she put to song, but it's thinking of her relationship with God and saying, do you think he never corrects me? Do you think he never disciplines me? Do you think he never is just straight up honest with me and tells me I'm messing up? If he didn't do that, what a false friend he would be. I couldn't call God my friend if God let me get away with the things that destroy myself. But he is a friend to me and he's a friend to you because when we do the things that destroy ourselves, he disciplines us, he convicts us, he challenges us, he puts people in our lives that try to challenge us as well. And he does this for his people. He's disciplining them. He's not allowing. He would rather their kingdom fall apart and their souls be saved. That's the God that we serve. He'd rather your kingdom fall apart and your soul be saved because he doesn't care about your kingdom. He cares about you as a person. And it's... It means he's worth worshiping and he's worth giving the whole of our lives in service to because he does have his priorities straight. When our priorities are out of whack, his are straight. And in the midst of this dark period of Israel's history, we get two amazing portions of scripture that are are amazing even if you just encounter them, but I think are especially amazing when you encounter them in context. One we just sang about. I wasn't going to even go here until we sang about it, and then I thought, well, that's perfect. (laughs) Let's go there. Let's go to Lamentations chapter 3. And in the midst of the darkness, what the prophet is able to say about the faithfulness of God in these dark times of Israel's history. It is in the... The seeing of the fall of Jerusalem, the walls are broken, the temple is destroyed, that the prophet can write the words in Lamentations chapter 3, in verse 21. Well, let's start in verse 16 so we really get the sense of what the prophet's feeling. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Every morning, his mercies are new. That means the first morning after the destruction of Jerusalem, his mercies are new. The first morning after the destruction of the temple, his mercies are new. And his love never ceases. What an amazing statement for the prophet to make for himself and for the people. The one who had forgotten what happiness is but can look to God and have confidence in his purposes. And then God gives to this prophet a vision of the future that can encourage himself and all the people around him. And we'll conclude in Jeremiah 29. It's the last scripture I'm going to ask you to turn to for today. Jeremiah 29. God gives to Jeremiah a message. What do you say to the people that are now in exile? What do you say to the people who know that the sin of their fathers and their own sin has led them to the situation that they're right now in? They have so little reason to hope unless they can come to the mature vision of Jeremiah. And starting in verse 3, it says, The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan. And it was sent the king of Judah to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know The plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. And all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What a message to receive for the people that were in exile. Build houses. Plant gardens. Get married. Live life. Don't decrease. Don't become overwhelmed with depression and despair but overcome in the continuing of your life and the life of others, that you can, in exile, still honor God 
And you can still in exile enjoy God and know this, that this exile is for a time. It's not forever, it's for a time. For 70 years, after that's completed, I'm going to bring you back. Now, for us to really get a sense of how that would have been heard by some of those original hearers, we have to mess with the numbers a little bit. Give me grace, I think you'll understand this when I'm done. It's like God coming to Lakeside Christian Church and saying, listen, I promise you, in 150 years, this is going to be everything I intended it to be. In other words, God is bringing a promise to his people, but he's saying to them, it's a promise I'm going to fulfill when you're dead and gone. Imagine if you were 65 years old and you heard Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. And to, you would not have heard that to say, I get to go back. No, 70 years from now, I'm going to do that. You can now, in the exile, enjoy me. You can follow me. You can live with me. You can build houses and plant vineyards. It doesn't mean all the blessings wait for the future, but this blessing and the pronouncement of it is for most of the people there, not something that they will experience for themselves. But it's still a good and a beautiful promise. And as we've said throughout, everything comes back to God and his promises. And we understand the unfolding of these stories in connection with the promises God makes. And he's saying to them, I love you. In my love for you, I'd rather destroy your kingdom and keep your souls. And in my love for you, I promise I'm going to bring you back. For those of you that can't make it back, I'm going to give you a way here that you can enjoy this now. And for your sons and your grandsons and your granddaughters, they will get to come back. Because again, my grace will always be greater than your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for the promises that you make to us, that your priorities are straight and that you care about each and every one of us more than you care about the cars we drive, the education we have, whatever we've been able to accumulate in this life. And that when we wander from you, when we refuse to heed your warnings, you love us too much to let us go. We thank you for the friends and family that we have in this church who can challenge us, who can care for us, who can rebuke us, who can look us in the face and tell us what we need to hear. And we thank you that no matter what our sins are, that you can, though they be as scarlet, you can make them white as snow. Father, help us to be overwhelmed in hearing these stories of your faithfulness of old, to know that you are faithful still. And that the promises for your people then are promises for us now. And let our lives, as we go from this place, reflect the confidence that comes in trusting in you, in your provision and in your power, that others would come to know this kind of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.